Hello and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and editors creating fascinating books of all kinds. I'm Rose Fox, Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Dan Cobalt, whose book, Putting the Science in Fiction, published by Writer's Digest Books, is the sponsor of today's podcast. Hi, Dan. It's really nice to talk with you. Hi. Thanks for having me on. So this is an unusual pleasure. Uh, usually we talk with authors, but today we're speaking with an editor. What was it like putting together this book of dozens of essays about how to write realistic science in fiction? I would say it was mostly like herding cats. I can imagine. Uh, go go on. Tell me more about that. Or you wanted more now. Yeah, so absolutely. It's it's mostly like herding cats. Uh, it's been really enjoyable, though. It's you know it's funny to hear you call me an editor because I didn't necessarily think of myself that way. But I guess that's my formal title for this, at least, in putting all the materials together and and coordinating everything with the publisher. So it, it has been a totally new kind of adventure for me in this sort of collaborative book production. But um, it's also been really interesting to be the point person between 40 people who've contributed part of a book and the publishing team that's trying to get that book out to the world. So there are almost 60 essays in here, and you said by about 40 authors. I did notice there were a couple of repeated names. How did you go about finding the contributors? Because each of these people is a, a noted expert in the field that they're writing about for you. Well, all of these are based from my ongoing blog series in which it's called The Science of Sci-Fi, Fact of Fantasy. And... I've just sort of been collecting experts over the years. What can I say? When I meet someone who's interested in writing in spec fiction and I find that they have some real-world expertise, I try and get them to come and contribute to the blog. So everyone who's part of the book um, has contributed one or more articles to the blog series, and that's how we kind of got to know one another. So the blog series now, I think it's probably around 150 articles on it, and at some point this idea came about of trying to take that and produce it in book form, including a lot of the articles that are sort of on part of the blog series, but expanded and and revised, and then some articles that are not published before that are unique to the book. So I was reading through the book. It's divided into several sections, um, research labs, hospitals, and really bad ways to die, which is one of those questions that writers always have. What's the interesting way I can kill my characters? Genome engineering, the brain is wider than the sky, which is a lovely phrase. Uh, From zero to 60 legs, that is. Things to know for when Skynet takes over, Earth and other planets. Uh, Sometimes it really is rocket science. And then Star Wars and the far future. How did you find people who were experts in what hasn't happened yet? And, uh, you know, tell tell me a little bit about putting that far future section together. That's a good question. You know, the far future is really, it's about extrapolating from what's current state-of-the-art technology to what we might see in the future. So really, um, I didn't necessarily ask myself, who's a far future expert? I really, um, once I met a contributor, I would ask them really just two questions, like, what are you an expert in, and how does it relate to science fiction and fantasy and other genre fiction? And then I often ask them, what do you see people get wrong about your particular area of expertise. And that's sort of the genesis of them coming to write an article. And then sometimes 
they'll say, you know, this, uh, another angle I'd like to take is I'd like to talk about this, this thing that's represented in science fiction and how close we are in the current real-world science to that. So that's real. It's kind of, it's kind of like we take it in reverse. I mean, they take something that's probably already been talked about in books or movies or television, and then they apply sort of their real-world expertise to say, well. How realistic is this aspect of it? How realistic is that? And what, what do we know about the current state of the art in science or technology? Your mention of what people gets wrong reminds me that I, I noticed a common thread in some of the essays, which is a discussion of throwing books across the room. So <laughs> it, it sounded like there was a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of itch to scratch there for some of these contributors that they've read books or seen shows with bad science and they want to fix that. Right. That, I mean, that truly is the single motivation of the book in the first place is to help writers um, know enough to be dangerous about all these different technical and scientific and medical concepts that we see so often in fiction. And anyone who has expertise in a certain subject area, when you're the expert in something, you tend to be paying attention to that aspect when you're reading a book or watching a movie or watching a television show. And so we all have this thing where like, we know something is so grievously wrong that it throws us right out of the story. And it's of course it's not the same for everyone. I mean, for me, it's genetics for an engineer. It's an engineering principle. So everyone, it's all these little slices of society where people have things that they encounter that are just, incorrect and it really bothers them so it's it's almost like a collection of addressing all the pet peeves of everyone who might be reading your book I work a lot with historical fiction uh, in romance and fantasy, and there's an entire separate set of pet peeves uh, that's usually grouped together as guns, gowns, and horses. Oh, yeah. Uh, where uh, if you get even one detail wrong, you will immediately be jumped on by many people who know a great deal about that specific thing. So you're performing a very valuable service here. Well, I like to think so. And, and it's not, I mean, the beauty of it is that even though I'm a scientist and have some years of experience in the field, obviously I can't speak for all of science and address any scientific or technical issue that might come up. So the real joy was finding this really diverse group of people who have wide-ranging expertise in other areas, especially areas that I know very little about because I'm the number one student for a lot of these articles as they come in and a lot of these chapters as they became part of the book in learning about things that I'm not really familiar with. I noticed that the very first essay in the book by Eric Prim is about how to ask an expert, which I thought was a wonderful thing to prime people with, to understand that this book is a start. It's not the be-all, end-all of all scientific knowledge of all time, and writers will need to go out and talk to scientists or other experts in their fields. And uh, I just appreciated that you addressed that right off the bat. I'm glad you said that. And, uh, you know, it it was enjoyable to have Eric's article lead off for a couple of reasons. Number one, he has um, a really unique background. He's a, an engineer at Boeing. He is a martial artist and teaches martial arts. And he also um, is a science fiction writer. And that's actually how we met. Even though we lived in the same town, we met because we were both taking these introduction to fiction writing classes. 
And so we got to know each other over this time. And then as the series came up, he was a natural person I wanted to approach about contributing an article. But he really um, he gets it because he sees both sides, the writer's side and the expert side. And tell us a little bit about your own science background and how it led you to create this blog of advice for writers about science. Oh, sure. Well, I'm, I'm a human geneticist, and I've been in the field about 15 years. For a long time, I worked at one of three major DNA sequencing centers in the United States, That basically the centers that produced the human genome for the Human Genome Project. And so I've been working the field a long time. Now I work in a major children's hospital. And the field of genetics has really changed rapidly in the time that I've been working in it because we went from very somewhat quickly from the initial draft of the human genome, which took like 10 years and a billion dollars to produce, to a rapid technological advancement. And now we can sequence a human genome in its entirety in about five days for about $1,200. That's amazing. Right. I mean, and so I just, I got lucky because I happened to enter this field at the right time and see how it's evolved since then. So I've kind of enjoyed being on the cutting edge of the technology as it applies to genetics, which is sort of my favorite area of science. So that's, I mean, my, my origin story is I got into the field at just the right time, and uh, I've been working mostly with so-called next-generation sequencing technologies and finding ways to apply it to study human disease and human health and identify new disease-causing genes and variants to help patients. So. That's that's my origin story. And then as for how I applied it, how it applied to this book and this type of expertise sharing is because I, I have a hobby, which is writing science fiction and fantasy. And I've been doing it for about 10 years. I have uh, a few books with HarperCollins, and uh, I just wanted to think, I wanted to find a way that I could contribute something unique to the writing community because it's a really... If you ever have taken part in the the community of aspiring and emerging writers, it's a wonderfully supportive network of people, and everyone sort of finds a way to give back to it. And the thing that occurred to me is like, well, maybe I can help with the science of science fiction, at least in my little corner of the world. And so I, I wrote a couple articles along this line, and the, the very first one, which probably will sound familiar, is, is Genetics Myths. And that, uh, and my, I think I, the title of the article was I-Based Paternity Testing and Other Human Genetics Myths. And that was the first article I wrote that sort of became the genesis for the series in which I shared some of the things I see that are tropes about genetics and inheritance we see all the time that aren't necessarily accurate and how I'm sort of debunking those and saying, this is how you should get it right if you really want to talk about genetics and inheritance. So that was the start of it. And then um, I started finding other contributors who could talk about areas where I wasn't as familiar with the science or the technology. And it, it just grew from there. I noticed that your essays, I mean, you start with what you call a whirlwind tour of the human genome, and that's only four pages. How did you manage to condense uh, all your knowledge into four pages and figure out what to put in and what to leave out? Well, um, I guess really good editing, because we had editors who, uh, at Writer's Digest, really helped us identify kind of what, for each of these chapters, really, we 
we had to condense somewhat because if we had left everything at the at the length that all of the expert contributors would want it to be, the book would have been about a thousand pages long. So we all had to kind of work at um, condensing it to just the most important information for the targeted audience, which is a writer or a fan of science fiction, fantasy, other genres. So in, in the case of the whirlwind tour, you know, I started with what I thought was cool and interesting that people might not know. You know, it, it's not a total 101 course for someone who has no idea of anything about DNA or genes or anything. But I thought, I'm going to talk about what what we know about the human genome and what's in it and what's very interesting and sort of state-of-the-art right now that people are pursuing. And obviously, I couldn't cover everything, but I sort of covered the things that I felt like had the most value for somebody that's interested in science fiction. What were some of your favorite things that you learned from the essays that other people sent you for this book? There are so many. You know, my background is in biology and genetics and a little bit in computer science. So I probably learn the most when it's a, a, an earth science like astrophysics, space travel. And just, um, you know, we already spoke about uh, Eric Prim. I have another Boeing engineer who's a contributor to this. And uh, her name is Jamie, and she wrote an article about sort of myths of space travel and was just talking about some of the fundamental challenges that people in the real world deal with when putting objects and ships in space. And one thing that she mentioned in her article I found very interesting is when you're moving in space, one of the hardest things to address and control is the fact that there's no friction, and that really affects how objects move. It's Newtonian physics, right? So you have to apply a force in one direction to move in the other direction. But what's interesting is she said it's not that it's not that you can't move objects in space. It's easy to apply force and get an object moving. The challenge is to move something without causing it to spin in an uncontrollable way. Like so moving spaceships and satellites, etc. because if you don't apply force just right, the thing will start to spin out of control, and then it, it, it becomes less useful to you. And in fact, I was just reading about the space junk problem that we have in the atmosphere. Have you heard about this? Yeah. In the lower and middle atmosphere, when we put things into orbit, there's a lot of stuff up there, right? Satellites uh, and space station, etc. But there's also a lot of junk that gets stuck in the lower and middle orbits that's flying around the Earth. And if you've seen an image of NASA depicting how much this stuff is, it looks like this thick band of junk. There are thousands of objects that are orbiting around Earth that they're trying to track because they don't want any of those objects to run into a very expensive satellite or space station or other object that's in orbit. So I was just reading about how do they tell when they have an object that's orbiting Earth, how do they know what's the junk versus what's something real? Because you can start with the databases of like countries and space agencies declaring, yes, okay, this is our satellite that we have up there, but not everybody declares everything, right? Military satellites and other things are quietly left off those lists, but it's a big object in space. It can be detected by radar. So one of the ways they tell, like, is this an object intentionally placed in space versus junk is 
they can look at the reflection of the object, reflection of light, and tell if it's spinning. If something is spinning, it's probably not in use because it, like a satellite or something, won't function if it's spinning over and over and over. So that's one of the ways they tell. And I was thinking, wow, that's really similar to what I learned when I read Jamie's article. So you were totally ahead of the game. Yeah, in in that one instance. And so, and it's only because, <laughs> you know, I had read the chapters in the book and I knew enough to be dangerous. And that's what we're trying to do for people that want to read the book. You're not going to become an expert from reading one chapter on a topic. But... You might learn enough to have an intelligent conversation about it and become interested in other things that are related to it, like I just mentioned. What was the process of putting the book together like, getting all of these contributions in? You mentioned the very intensive editing and uh, bringing it out into the world. Oh, well, I mean, it was a very interesting process because unlike fiction, where typically in the fiction world, you have to write an entire book in order to get that book published. And then you you write the book, you try to find a literary agent if you want to go the route of traditional publishing, and that, and that agent shops the manuscript around to editors. Um, that's how it works in fiction. In nonfiction, it's very different. Most nonfiction books are written on spec, and you sell them on the basis of a proposal. And the proposal content is sort of a well-described thing. You need to have a detailed outline of the book, a description of sort of what it's going to be about, who the target audience is, what other books are like it out there, and why should you be the person that writes this book and your expertise and credentials to write the book. So um, I was was sort of distantly familiar with the format, and I hadn't really thought too much about nonfiction, though, because I was writing fiction at the time. And my literary agent said, um, hey, you know that great blog series you've got going? Have you ever thought about turning that into a book? And I said... Uh, you know, I hadn't thought too much about it. I'm kind of interested in the idea. I said, I don't, I don't really know how it would work because, you know, I've got all these expert contributors who bring most of the content to it. So, and, but I write a few of the articles myself, but I said, that's not enough to make a book. I mean, really, you'd want to get as much as you can across a wide uh, spectrum of disciplines. And he said, well, you know, Probably all we need to do is um, approach the contributors and see who'd be willing to take part if we wanted to put a proposal together. So I, I, what I did is I took the 40 or so people who had contributed an article by this time that was under the science and sci-fi envelope and said, hey, would you mind if we use your article as part of a proposal to go and try and get a, turn this into a book? And everyone was on board right away. And so I really tried to manage expectations because the reality of book publishing is there's a lot more things that people would want to be published than can actually be published. It's just the nature of the industry, right? There are many more authors than there are slots on a major publisher's list. So so I said, you know, don't hold your breath about this, but we're going to put together a proposal. And Paul and I worked on it together. And it was a new experience for both of us, getting all the pieces together and what do we need and how do we organize this. And um, we approached, a, and, and then he got to do the fun work of uh, figuring out who do I pro- what publishers m- might I approach with this. Um, and obviously, Radar's Digest was on our radar because they, they're really well known for producing books that are aimed at writers, and also the head of my agent's literary agency had done a couple of books with them, Donald Moss. So we had a good lead there, and, and they were interested 
pretty quickly. So, you know, once we were done celebrating, the real work began because everyone had, I had to be the shepherd of 60 articles from 40 different contributors all have to be written in a standard format, put together, you know, get the image permissions, all this stuff, and get it to the publisher. Overall, I have to say, it, it's gone really smoothly, and that's mostly because all of our contributors were so gung-ho and very willing to do this. And the folks at Writer's Digest have been a joy to work with, too, so that's been a real positive experience for me all over. So if writers were going to take one thing away overall from this book and its approach, what do you think that would be? Take one thing. Well, I hope they don't just take one thing, but I guess if, if you are forced to, I would say um, the key lesson here is that with a little bit of investment of time and energy, you can learn enough about a topic to write it with some competence. And like I said before, you don't have to become an expert in every single thing that you want to put in your book. But with a little basic knowledge, you can avoid the situation where somebody who knows the topic better than you is going to throw it across the room. So I just encourage people to think about doing a little upfront research and don't assume that because they've watched movies or TV shows about something that they know enough to write, because often that contains its own misrepresentations. So you can learn it, and the best way to learn it is to find an expert in the subject matter. And and so that's what that leading article is about, how to find an expert. And sometimes what I do to, when I talk about this book or about the science and sci-fi, I end with saying, and here are some ways you can find people who are experts in this and how to approach them and, and how much to, you know, I, I encourage people to, Take all the information they're willing to give you, but then you're going to have to digest that and decide what is most relevant. You can't put a 40-page treatise on some topic like the physics of space travel into your book. You have to distill that down and decide what, what things do I really need to handle very well with just the right amount of detail that will make this convincing to someone who, who understands the underlying principles. And that's, so that's what I encourage writers to do is learn enough to be dangerous and learn how to get the right information. I've been speaking with Dan Cobalt. His book is Putting the Science in Fiction, Expert Advice for Writing with Authenticity in Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Other Genres. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us for the next LitCast. <laughs>